You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. I've not met before. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, so I just want to welcome you. Say uh, thanks for being with us. We're in a, a new series where we're uh, working our way through the book of Jonah. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, well, we have one for you. It's under the seat in front of you. And uh, today's passage will be on page 451. 451. We're going to look at Jonah's, uh, Jonah chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 4, and talking about this idea that you can't outrun Mercy. So let me pray for our time in the Word together, and then we will uh, we'll hop into it. God, we thank you for your Word, that you speak to us through the Word that you have given. And Lord, we gather here with all kinds of backgrounds, uh, all kinds of burdens, all kinds of experiences. And while we don't know everything about everyone... We don't even understand our own hearts so frequently. You know all. And so we pray that you would take this scripture today and you would apply it to each one here and that you would draw us to yourself. We pray that you would give us a more accurate picture and an understanding of who you are and what you're like and that we would come running to you, the God of mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about the tendency that we all really can have to look at the world through the grid of us and them, us and them. And we saw how that's really Jonah's mindset, and I think it's one of the big points that the, that the book is trying to address, that God is teaching us really how wrong this kind of an attitude is. Uh, God calls this prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he tells him to go to this foreign city and to warn them that judgment is coming. And Jonah wants no part of that because he understands that to proclaim that judgment is coming is also to give them an invitation to repent and for God to show mercy on them. And that's the last thing in the world that Jonah wants, because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria is a nation of people that are notoriously, certainly their leaders, notoriously violent and cruel. They're a domineering sort of a nation that has exacted tribute uh, from Israel. So they are really viewed as an enemy. They as a nation are an enemy, and Jonah can't fathom that God would show mercy to the enemies of his own people. He can't imagine going and preaching to them unless there is certain justice now that will come to them. And what's very clear is that Jonah doesn't understand God's ways. He, He doesn't grasp God's surprising mercy which is not only for Israel, but is also for the nations. Israel was never to sort of hoard God's mercy, but to freely proclaim and distribute, just as we are. We don't hoard God's mercy. We don't receive God's mercy and celebrate that we're now insiders. 
and sort of look down upon everyone else who is an outsider. We don't embrace the attitude which is apparent evidently in Jonah's life, mercy for me, justice for you. Mercy for me, us. Mercy for us, justice for them. And because he doesn't understand God's grace, when he, mercy, when he is given this calling, he runs from it. Uh, physically, he runs. He gets in a boat and he heads to a city that's on the far end of the known world at that time, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And that's where we sort of find him today. We find out what happens once he gets on the boat. There's a lot of irony in the book of Jonah. Jonah, who is the Hebrew prophet, disobeys God, while everybody else in the story, the pagans, the Gentiles, the foreigners, they all obey God. Jonah runs from God, but everyone else runs to God. The outsiders see God more clearly than the insider. And what we see is that when we see God clearly, we will run to him and not from him. Jonah has a distorted understanding of the character of God, but these, these pagan unbelievers begin to see God as he is, and they begin to respond to him. That's what we see as we read about these sailors, these mariners <clears throat> that uh, are on the ship that Jonah is on headed to Tarshish. So let's look at Jonah chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 4 and <clears throat> really finish up the chapter. But the Lord hurled a great wind against the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. One of the best ways to get at the meaning of a passage of Scripture is just to read it over and look for repeated terms, repeated words. That's usually uh, a very clear signal to what the author has in mind. So there's several words that are repeated. Uh, the, the, the verb hurl, to hurl is repeated. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind up on the sea. Verse 5, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Verse 12, Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And I looked at that this week. I thought, maybe I'll preach on that, a biblical view of hurling. Uh, And when your life makes God hurl, you know, this is what's going on. But I don't think that's the primary. It's a repeated word. uh, But I think there's a word that really gets more at the theme of the section, and that is the word fear. Because if we trace the various fears that the sailors experience, we see them traced right in, we just trace those fears and we see them led right into conversion. But it's this fear that leads them along the way. And the first fear we see, number one, is the fear of the storm. That's where it sort of starts. This fear of the storm is going to ultimately lead them to an understanding, an accurate picture of God so that they run to God rather than run away from God as Jonah does. So the first thing is the fear of the storm. This is the circumstance. It's the fear of the circumstance they find themselves in. God, uh, in verse 4, he hurls a great wind upon the sea, and there's a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So this storm comes, it's so intense, they think that the boat itself is going to break open, and they will drown at sea. So verse 5 says, the mariners were afraid. They're afraid, understandably, because of the storm. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So immediately they are afraid, and what do they do? They do two things. First of all, everybody starts crying out to his own God. Now, uh, everyone at this time was uh, were all polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. And so everyone uh, probably is crying out to different gods. They're probably, it says their own god. So depending on where you are, uh, you had your own god of your region where you were from. You had your own god. <clears throat> um, or, or sometimes you had maybe the same God, but you had a, a different name and some different characteristics. So maybe every people uh, group would have had a God of the sea, but maybe you called him something different than another nation. Uh, so they are all calling on their various gods. Uh, and the second thing they do is they act. They pray and they act. They start getting rid of cargo so that the uh, boat doesn't uh, sort of sink with a, as it's taking on waters. They hurl that cargo into the sea. But we know from the beginning that while they're hurling cargo, God has already hurled a wind. 
And they're not going to be able to get enough cargo off the boat to protect themselves. You cannot out-hurl God. When God brings a storm, you're not going to be able to deal with it by just getting rid of what you have on board. Now, we can look at these sort of primitive uh, pagan sailors and, you know, sort of think, you know, what are they doing? They're calling out to the God of the storm, the God of the sea. There's probably a God of seafarers that they're calling out to, the various ones, the God of safe passage and, uh, very, and the God, their head God. They're, they're, we can look at this and sort of think, you know, it's so, uh, to call out to God over the elements, various elemental gods, various tribal gods, everybody had their own uh, national, regional, there were professional gods. If you were of a, by that I mean uh, a God of a profession. So seafarers, um, mariners would have had their own God. So it's just this plethora of gods, and we can look down and say, you know, that, that just is really sort of silly that we have to cry out to the wind god and the storm god and all these kinds of things. But it, it, it occurs to me that we do something very similar when storms come to us. Christians do something very similar. Uh, we, when we feel overwhelmed, it's very natural for us to turn to idols as well, even those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. An idol, they're, they're crying out to false gods, but, a, but an idol is just anything that we substitute for the true God. They have a God substitute. They're about to meet the real God, but they have a God substitute, and we do the exact same thing. We know the true and living God, but wherever you go for help, wherever, wherever you trust, wherever you put your trust, whatever you are ultimately depending on in your time of need, that is that is your God. And so when we have a massive, you know, sort of fearful event in our life, fearful circumstance, when we are afraid of the storm and afraid of the circumstance, it just comes so easy that we put our trust in something besides God. It may not be a bad thing, but if it's become an ultimate thing, it is a bad thing. So we trust our money to get us out of a situation or we fear that we won't make it. That's a trust in money as well. We just don't have enough, and so we are fearful. We trust in experts who can give us answers to solve the problems. We trust in doctors, surely a gift from God. We want to uh, take advantage of the medical help that we have in our culture, but oftentimes we can fix our entire hope on a human to rescue us. Or maybe we're in some kind of trouble and we put all our hope in an attorney to rescue us. Or our research. We trust Google. There's an answer for this. The God of Google. If I look long enough on the internet, then I can solve this problem. Have I prayed about it? Of course not. I am researching it to get the answer so that I feel in control. I've got to have control. What's control? Knowledge. If I get the, the knowledge that's out there from the experts in this circumstance, I'll be okay. We trust our, our own knowledge, our experience. We trust our reputation. We, we, can, we trust our friends. Certainly this person will help me or our, my family. They, they will. All these are good things. Google's a gift. Doctors are a gift. Family and friends, that's wonderful. That's a gift. But they make a very poor God. And so we can sort of panic 
and go in a, a thousand different places desperately trying to protect our, we can act. I'm going to protect myself. Just start throwing cargo over. And if I just do this thing, I'll be okay. And we forget God. Listen, nothing exposes who our God is more than when a deadly storm comes in. They're turning to false gods, the God of the storm, the God of the water, the God of the seafarers, whatever they are. I don't know all their nations. If I did, maybe I could have done some research and told you who the, uh, I could have Googled and found out who their gods were, but it doesn't tell us. But God of the elements, no doubt. Gods of the elements, no doubt. And, and so this, this reveals who their God is. And the reality is, if we could see God clearly in the storm, we would be crying out to him and running to him first. Prayer is not an afterthought. It's, a, it's, the, it's the first place we go, to the Lord. doesn't mean that we don't go to other sources and, and benefit from other provisions. We do. But we first go to God, and we, our, our ultimate trust and reliance is on him. Now, Jonah isn't turning to God at all. Jonah is at the bottom of the boat asleep. Certainly, he is tired. There's nothing more exhausting than running from God. Nothing is more exhausting. And if you've ever been a wandering believer, you know that. Nothing is more exhausting. So he is tired but there's more here. It's not just that Jonah is sleepy. There's more here, and we, we pick that up because Jonah is rebuked by the pagan ship's captain. I'm calling them pagan, just meaning they were uh, believing in other gods. I don't know what better word to use. Um, so they are, the, the, he comes and he gets corrected. The, the guy goes down, the captain goes down, verse 6, He's asleep in the inner part of the ship. They're all crying out to their gods. Verse 6, the captain comes to him and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing sleeping? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah has just been descending. As he runs from God, he goes lower and lower. The passage that last week we saw said he goes down to Joppa, He goes down on a boat, that's what it says, and now he has gone down, it says in verse 5, in the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So running from God means he goes lower and lower and lower till now he's at the bottom of this ship and he's asleep. And the Gentile captain comes and uses the exact same language that God uses to him. Look at the verse 1, verse 2. Arise, this is God, arise and go to Nineveh. What does the captain say? Arise and call out to your God. Actually, God said that. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against them. Arise and call out. Now a pagan is waking him up, and he's saying, arise and call out. Jonah doesn't want to talk to Gentiles about God. That's the whole reason he's on the boat, and that's exactly what's about to happen. He's going to have to talk to Gentiles about God what he least wants to do, but you cannot escape the mercy of God. So he calls him, and and look at the captain's concern. It's such a contrast to Jonah. Call out to your God. We are all calling out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain is concerned about us, understandably. He's the ship's captain, 
but he wants everyone to do what they can for us. Do what you can to rescue. You may have a God that we don't know about that'll intervene. But this is not Jonah. There's nothing in here that tells us Jonah starts intervening. As a matter of fact, he says, get up and start praying. And the next thing we read in verse 7 is, they said to one another, let's cast lots so we'll find out on whose account this evil has come upon us. So in other words, it's kind of like drawing straws. Okay, you know, it doesn't say that Jonah got up and cried out. It doesn't say that Jonah got up and offered and explained. He has to be interrogated. He doesn't come and say, hey, let me tell you about God. Oh, you guys were pitching some cargo early. Let me come up and help out. He's just separated from everyone. He's not interceding for anyone. They have to say, let's draw lots. So, so really, Jonah is the exact opposite of how a believer should function in the world. It is the pagan captain that is acting for the common good of all of those on the boat. He is the one who is acting to rescue everybody. And part of being salt and light, Jesus' term, description of the Christian, is part of being salt and light in our culture is that we are to act for the common good of other people. To, to use the image here, pun intended, we're all in the same boat with those around us. And God places believers in their cities, in their neighborhoods, in their families, in their places of employment, so that you would be one who acts for the good of others in any number of ways, by providing practical help to bring uh, good to others that they may flourish, and also to represent God. He is, there's nothing here about him representing God until he's interrogated. He is, he is not telling everybody, hey, let me tell you, here's how in the midst of the storm you can know God, the true living God. There is rescue for you in God. He's not saying any of that sort of thing, which leads Tim Keller to say in his book, we have a very good book out there called The Prodigal Prophet. Sorry we ran out last week, but we got some more, so if you want to buy a copy, you can get it. Keller comments about Jonah, his private faith is of no public good. What good is it to have a prophet of God on the boat in the storm if his mouth is shut and he's asleep, separating himself from everyone. What good is his faith in this moment? It's not benefiting anyone. And the very reason God shows mercy on us is so that we would be a benefit and a blessing, extending the mercy of God to others around. Jonah's forfeiting his calling, missing his purpose here. And it, the irony is what's kind of a slap in the face to us. It's the pagan unbeliever that has all the concern, that has to tell the believer, call out to your God, that has to say, come be with us. We're trying to figure this thing out together. It's, it's a rebuke. And listen, as Christians, one of the challenges we have is our own arrogance that when the, when the world corrects us in any way, it's the us and them. We just sort of put up our, our barriers. And now oh, they're just persecuting us and they just hate us and this, that. They may be speaking the truth of God to us, correcting us. Humble people are those who listen to God's direction and correction from all sources, believer and unbeliever alike. And here, Jonah won't listen to God, but God has all kinds of way of getting his attention if he won't listen to him directly. 
He's got storms. He's got pagan ship captains. He's got great fish. He's got all kinds of means. And the humble person says, God, my ear is open to you. Speak to me. Help me to learn what you would say to me from others. So there is a fear of the storm that leads to this point. The next thing that happens is there is a fear of judgment. So now it's going to get a little bit more specific. There's a fear of judgment. They cast lots. They find out. They want to say who's guilty. They, the, the Jonah, uh, if it's straws, it's, it's like, kind of like it's discerning the divine will. So some people say it's like dice, rolling dice. Some people say the lot was kind of like uh, drawing straws and Jonah drew the short one. Whatever it is, it's some means that they find out. And they say, who are you? Who are you? So it points to you. And then verse 8, they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come. What is your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Why are they asking this? Well, they want to know Jonah's God. Every one of these things they ask about had gods. What's your occupation? Your trade had a god. Uh, Where do you come from? Your area had a god or gods, plural. What is your country? Every country had national gods. And of what people are you? Your ethnicity, oftentimes various ethnicities, various peoples, peoples, groups, very various ethnic groups, people groups had their own gods. And so tell us who all your, we want to know where you are, where are your gods? And it's very interesting. He doesn't answer their question first with what does he do? He doesn't answer it with who he worships. He answers it with his ethnicity. This is telling. The first thing he says is, I'm a Hebrew. That's where he starts. And none of you people are. These are the pagans. There's the Assyrians. Very aware of this sort of a, a thing. He is centered on his people. And that's why he doesn't want to go to Assyria. Because he doesn't want those people, the foreigners the enemies of God, another nation, to receive his mercy. So there is something here about his people that he is uniquely drawn to. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he says, okay, here's my God. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, and he uses God's name. Whenever in your Bible you see LORD in all caps, that means they're translating the covenant name of God that he gives to his people. Uh, for which we kind of transliterate into Yahweh. Um, and so he gives them the name. I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So my God created all of this. And he's in charge of everything. He created the sea. I fear the Lord. Again, it's a, it's a very ironic statement. The ESV Study Bible points out, it says, quote, Ironically, Jonah confesses the fear of God who controls the sea, which Jonah is crossing to escape from the presence of God. <laughs> I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. I want you guys to know I'm serious. I'm a believer. I follow this God. But the problem is, though he has the right confession, his lifestyle does not match his confession. He's not in awe of God. To fear the Lord means to be in awe of God, to be amazed by God, to be living in wonder of God, to be responding with a heart that is struck by the presence of God. He doesn't fear the Lord. He's not in awe of the Lord. He's disappointed with God. He's angry with God. He isn't driven by what God thinks, what God commands. He knows better. 
He's doing the very opposite of fearing the Lord. That is, he's saying, I know better than God. God shouldn't be showing mercy to those people. And isn't that the case? When we are drifting from God, or worse, when we are running from God, it's always because we think we know better. We know better. There's a better story for me out there, so I'm leaving God's plan, and I'm going to go do my thing. When the sailor realizes that his God is the creator God who made the sea, look what it says, verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. So they're afraid when the storms comes. Now they're exceedingly afraid. What are they afraid of? Well, they're ultimately afraid they're going to be collateral damage. God is judging this guy, and they're going to get caught in the judgment as well. What is it you have done? The men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they are thinking the same thing is going to act is going to happen to us. So they turn to Jonah and say, okay, you're getting judged. What must we do to be saved? In essence, is what they say. We don't want to be, be a part of your deal. What are you doing? Verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? We want, we want safety. So how do we get that? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come up on you. Now, there's something, do we view that as noble? Is he doing something noble here? Maybe. He's saying, you deal with me. But we also know that he says later in the story, uh, I would rather be dead than see these people receive mercy. Just kill me, God, is what he says, if you're going to give them mercy. So perhaps he's just saying, you know what? I'm just done. I'm not a part. I don't want to be a part of this plan of God anyway. Just toss me. But they don't want to do that. Again, they look so good in the story. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. So again, when God blows the storm, you can't row against it enough. You can get in your little boat and row, 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 but you will never out-row the wind of God. And so they can't get back to the sea, so then to, to the land, rather. So they say, what must you know, we do? I, I guess we will do what the guy says. So, verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, all caps. Now they're using the covenant name of God. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. What do they do? They give this biblically accurate, it sounds like a psalm. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 135, the Lord does what pleases him. The God of land and the God of the sea, or that's a very rough Something like that is what it says very close. They probably should have read it. But um, so he's, he's saying this. They, they are, in essence, responding biblically to God. They're saying, Oh, Yahweh, you have done as it pleased you. What are they saying? We turn to you, sovereign God. You can do anything that you want. You are doing what pleases you by bringing a storm and by bringing judgment on this man. Please don't hold us guilty. Lay not on us innocent blood. So let us not perish, but we recognize you as sovereign, Yahweh. They toss him in the water, and then it's amazing what happens. 
So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay, so they fear the storm. Jonah tells them that his God's the God over everything. He's caused it, and he's running from that God, and this is what God is doing because he's running. So then they exceedingly fear the judgment of Jonah that it will come upon them, that they will get kind of caught in it. And then they ultimately fear the Lord who has done what pleased him. Now, this is a personal fear. Fear the Lord. They're in awe of God. It would cause such a sense of awe, wouldn't it? If a guy, there's a storm, it's getting worse and worse. Every passage, it, it keeps getting worse and worse. And he says, just throw me over and it'll stop. You throw him over and it ceases and it's placid and calm. You can imagine, whoa, that they are, their lives are spared. God has had mercy upon them. He's going to have mercy on Jonah too because Jonah, he sends a fish for Jonah. But he has mercy upon them. And what do they do? When they see that kind of mercy, when they see that God has not judged them at all, they fear the Lord. And what do they do? They offer a sacrifice and they make vows. Now, what's telling about this? And the reason most commentators say this is some kind of a conversion experience they have. The reason is because this isn't one of those deals where you pray, God, if you'll get me out of this jam, I'll serve you forever. It's not that kind of a deal. The deal is God has rescued them, and now they are responding to his saving work. They're responding to his rescue. They're responding to what he has done. And they worship, they offer a sacrifice, and they commit themselves to God. They make vows to God. They fear him exceedingly. What an incredible mercy they've experienced, and they run to this God commit themselves to him. God's instantaneous calming of the raging storm happens again in the New Testament, doesn't it? In the life of Jesus. Now there's a Jonah-Jesus connection that Jesus makes. He, he talks about the story of Jonah and makes a connection to himself. He doesn't make a connection about the storm, but it is interesting that in Mark 4, the same thing happens. The disciples are on a boat. Uh, in this case, Jesus is asleep and a, a, a storm threatens them, and they, they freak out, wake Jesus up. And Jesus doesn't pray. He doesn't throw anyone overboard. Jesus just stands up and says, peace, be still. And the, the, uh, the water ceases to rage, and everything is calm. And the disciples who are with him, they say this in John 4. They say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. They are stunned and they respond in fear of the Lord. Because when you see the character of God on display, when you see the work of God, it is meant to draw you to him, not that you would run from him. This Jonah-Jesus connection, uh, Jesus says that Jonah is a sign pointing to him in Matthew 12. Um, but there are differences, aren't there? Jonah is tossed overboard because of his disobedience to God. He's swallowed by a fish. And Jesus says, as Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and nights, my sign is that I'll be in the earth for the same amount of time. There's one huge difference, though. Jonah is tossed overboard. Jonah is buried in a fish for three days because of his sin. 
Jesus dies on a cross and is buried for three days because of our sin. Jonah pays a price and it ultimately saves the sailors. And in the same way, Jesus pays a price by taking our sin upon himself on the cross. He's buried and he's resurrected. So he saves all those who will look to him for rescue. All those his, his saving power is not just the ceasing of winds and storm and the threat to physical life. His saving power is that which saves us from our core, our being. It, he gives us new life. He unites us with himself. He forgives our sins upon our belief. When we turn from sin and believe in him, we aren't just saved in, uh, from the physical threat of a storm. We are saved from his very judgment for eternity because another one takes our punishment. Jesus is substituted for us. What a powerful experience of the love of God, the acceptance of God in Christ. I mean, wouldn't you want to know this God who knows everything about you, the worst about you, knows everything about you, and yet loves you? He knows that even you, that, that you will be a Jonah at some point, just as I am. You will drift. You will not obey him. You will say you love him one day, and the next you'll blow him off and do your own deal. And God would still accept you because of the work of Christ and love you. Knowing us for all of our failures, knowing that we will fail him as we go on, and yet saying, I'll make a covenant with you, a new covenant in my blood, that you will be with me forever. Who wouldn't want to experience that kind of acceptance? Not a God that you must placate and not a God that you must do something to get in his good graces. Not a God that you must obey for acceptance, but a God who says, even though you have disobeyed and I know you will in the future, I accept you because of my son who gave his life for you. As we close, a couple thoughts of application. While this isn't an allegory, this is a story, a historical account, I believe, It's an historical account of God and his mercy to people. Verse 17, we'll look at this next week, but the the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's mercy to Jonah. He doesn't let him die. And these sailors, that's God's mercy to them. And it just occurs to me, while it's not an allegory, I do think we can sort of put ourselves in the story a little bit and make connections. Some of us are like the sailors. Some of us here today are like the sailors. You, You don't know the God who created you. You don't know the God that, that Jonah speaks of, the God who controls not just the weather, but all things. You don't know the God who gave you life, and you may not be in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, but God extends mercy to you. If you will turn and believe in him, just as they believed and went from what they uh, were crying out to, to the true God of the Bible. God created you to know him, that this is what they experienced. God created you with a purpose, and life will never really make sense as long as you are chasing all kinds of other things as a substitute for God. We were created to know him and to fulfill his purposes, and, and you will miss the very purpose for which you were created if you don't know him. You miss the reality that God, even in the storm, works all things for our good, when those who are in relationship with him, those who believe, even in the storm, he works all things for our good. He takes all the difficulties of life, and he's molding us. He's shaping us into the people he wants us to be that reflect, that look more and more like Jesus. This is what we were created 
for. No matter how much cargo we toss, no matter how hard we row, life is ultimately a a series of frustrations because we are going against the very God who is seeking to get our attention. And God extends mercy to you if you have never trusted Jesus as the one who died for your sin in your place, that you could be forgiven, that you could be right with God that you could experience his mercy. Today, I encourage you to do that, to just turn and, in essence, say, I give up. Oh, Lord, you do what pleases you. I believe in you. I believe in you. You know, Rob gave us the Alpha invite. Let's pray. This kind of story in the Scripture just shows us how radical is the grace of God. This entire book is about the least likely people to believe, believe. The ones farthest from God come near because of the work of God. And that's why Rob said we're going to pray for three weeks because we want the God of grace to touch our friends and family and those who are far from him. We want to see them come to Christ. Um, If you're in that place yourself, you're welcome to come to Alpha. We'd love to have you on the 17th of September. But let's all pray for someone that that the the vision of the sailors should, this, this kind of event should inspire our hope and trust in the God who converts people who aren't even looking for him. God, God goes after people that aren't really even seeking. In fact, the Bible says no one's seeking. God comes after us in mercy. That's the truth. Some of us are like Jonah. Some of us are wandering from God. Some of us are drifting from God. Some of us are running from God, unwilling to obey him. As I was preparing, I was just thinking, I I believe there's some in the room, and no one may know this but you, but there are some in the room that you were passionate about God at one time, and things have changed. You are now distancing yourself from God, and you're running. You're running. If you're not moving, there's no neutral. We're moving towards him or we're moving away from him. There's no neutral. And if you're not moving towards him and cultivating affection for him and love for him and desire for him, if that's not, you know, in any given days up and down, any given weeks up and down, but if the pattern of your life over time is not a move towards him, then you're not staying still. You're moving away from him. And there are different ways that we run from him. And I think you see them all in Jonah. Some of us are angry runners. We are running away from God in anger. I believe Jonah's initially angry with God, the passage we looked at last week. Some of you are angry with God, and it shows. You, you just, there's, a, there's an irritation. There's a, a snarkiness. There is a snap. You snap. There, there's just a sense of God has not been the kind of God I thought he should be to me. And you're moving away from him. God hasn't done what I thought he should do. I did my part. Why didn't he do his part? Which means we don't understand the grace of God. And so we're running from him. If you could understand the grace of God, you'd run to him. If you had a clear picture of the mercy of God, you'd be running into his arms. If you saw what you deserve and how he's treated you and showered you with mercy, you'd be running to him. But we run away from him when we forget that and we misunderstand mercy. We run the other direction. And so you've given up on prayer. You're, you're here, but you're about to give up on God's people. You know that God, he hasn't done. He's not been what you expected. Let me just tell you, the book of Jonah, if it teaches anything, it says that even if you give up on God as a true believer, God never gives up on you. He will not let you go. He is after you. 
He is after you. Don't go through a near-death experience on a boat. Turn to him now. Come back now. Come back now. Because there is a, st- there is a storm coming for every one of us in our lives. We all have storms. They always come. God's mercy is to you. And I can't answer what's happened. I can't answer. I can't explain the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. But I can assure you from Scripture that he is merciful. And even the things that he has not done that you wanted him to do or that he allowed to happen that you wish he would have stopped or that he caused to happen, even those things, God wants to use those for your ultimate good. Some of us are not angry runners. We're just more, I would call, fake runners because there's a scene of real fake in here too. Fake runners mean, you know, I'm just hypocritical. I'm acting like everything's okay. But in my heart, man, I am drifting. That's Jonah. I fear the Lord. You want to know about me? Here's what I would tell you about me. I fear the Lord, which is why I'm running from him right now and asleep in the boat when I sh- and pagans are telling me to call out to him. That's the kind of fear of the Lord I have. He's got a good confession He's a church member, but he is, his heart is running from God. He's, some of us are pretending like everything's okay, like we fear the Lord, but we have an empty confession because we are drifting. We just have words. Maybe that's where you are today. We just have words, but we don't have a life that reflects a pursuit of God. And God says, be real. You need to start by telling somebody that and being real from sort of hypocrisy. There's apathetic runners as well. I think Jonah's that way too. He's asleep at the bottom of the boat and, and, and he is indifferent to God. And some of us in the room are becoming indifferent to God. We are indifferent to God's calling on our lives. We are indifferent to others. We are apathetic about the spiritual condition of other people. It used to matter to us. Now it doesn't. Now it doesn't. We don't really care. Okay, the boat's going down. These people are calling out to fake gods. You know, what doesn't bother. It's not my business. We're just apathetic to God's purpose for our life. We're apathetic to him. Let's just go take a nap. Maybe you've become more passionate about something else. There's at least some evidence that Jonah's running to Tarshish. Uh, There's some historical evidence that Tarshish was kind of a paradise. He just says, I'm going to check out and go to paradise. I'm leaving my calling. And some of us are just looking to check out and go to some kind of paradise where I don't have to have all this God stuff in my life. Please know that if you've become passionate about something or someone else, there is no deep satisfaction outside of the God who has created you, who has redeemed you, who has put a a purpose on you and in you, and you know that. You know that in your soul. You know that. How could there be a better plan than the God who created you and formed you? How could anyone else have a better plan for you? I mean, just think about it for a minute. That's, that's, that's an impossibility that a creature could come up with a better plan for our lives than a creator. Listen, I see all of these as potentials in my heart. It's not like this isn't somebody else. I, I, I can be angry with God. I can fake it. I can be apathetic and sort of my edge, edge of my faith just sort of worn down by love of the world or whatever else. We all can be drifting like this. And the reality is that we drift when we don't grasp the mercy of God. And we begin to run from, move from him. I believe the most miserable life is a true believer who is running from God. I believe there's no more miserable way to live your life. There may be moments 
that you escape and there's pleasure and uh, you find some kind of momentary fleeing enjoyment. But in your soul, when it's just you at night and you're going to sleep and there's no one else around but you and your thoughts and God, you know in your soul you're missing it. I don't have to preach this to you. You know this. There's some people in the room go, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And God is showing mercy today. If you are on the run in anger, in hypocrisy, in apathy, come home because God is extending mercy to you. He has open arms to run back to him, to say, God, my plan is not better. Your plan is better. I'm not going to chase another story, another philosophy, another plan, another idol, because you are the God of heaven and earth and you are the savior who has given your life for me and drawn me to yourself i return to your mercy and i pray that if that's you today that that's exactly what would happen let's pray along those lines right now thank you for listening to this sermon from grace church to receive future messages subscribe to the podcast on itunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org